It is it is fancier. The neighborhood is definitely fancier. It's it's weird. It's like it's definitely like uh I think I moved from the Bronx to Brooklyn. That means nothing to me. You are you serious that it means nothing to you? Not literally nothing. I know those are places in New York. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by not doing a show for about an entire month while they move and or get their internet fixed. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bobinger. With me on the line from somewhere new in Istanbul, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how has it been going? Uh, it's been tumultuous, but things are good now as well, they no, settle that... into a new order. That's kind of what happened in America while you were gone to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, for, for those of you who don't know, which is to say all of you, because why would you know this? Uh, David has been moving and traveling a fair amount the last few weeks. That is why we have not been able to do a show. Uh, last week, he did not have any internet, even though he was in his new place. And uh, I actually lined up a guest host. We may still end up doing a recording just because... Um, always fun to throw new things out there, but David is back with us again, which means we can talk about the pressing issues that were live when last we recorded, um, such as the stunning upset in which Truman defeated Dewey. Yeah, well, the it is interesting to think about the opportunities afforded by um, this long abeyance in our uh, in our recording and publishing of this uh, podcast because, you know, the last couple episodes that we had, we talked about uh, McCain and the process of memorializing McCain. And we can just kind of pick right up on a lot of those themes to talk about George H.W. Bush, for example. Um, You know, there were a lot, there were discussions about, um, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, there was sort of an immediate um, pickup from from that from that theme that a lot of obviously the pundit type people um, also drew in um, their reports about uh, about how the funeral went. Um, and then there's like the there's the way that the house races, uh, which um, yeah, we we talked about the election. Well, the election hadn't happened the last time we recorded. Man, that really was a long time ago. It really ago. was that long ago. I think October yeah. 18th well, or something was the last well, episode. Well, we were talking about, I, I do remember we were talking about um, the way that, for example, the, um, or at least the seeming indications, the difficulty of drawing clear um, inferences from the data about, for example, Senate races. Uh, <clears throat> that seems to show the the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation process had made him totally radio well not totally reactive but unprecedentedly unpopular for a Supreme Court nominee, um, but in ways that actually strengthened Republicans in certain geographies. But now we have the result of the elections that show this. Totally unprecedented. I mean, almost literally unprecedented uh, Democratic sweep in the House, um, but uh, somewhat more restrained, somewhat sort of sort of more standard middle of the road performance in the Senate. Uh, there are yet more other. There are yet more topics that we could discuss. Right. I mean, that's as as you said. The passage of time is great for this because one of the things that. I mean, it seems to be happening more and more with every election as people get increasingly impatient is that they want to put together the narrative of the election immediately, even while the election is still going on. And we know, we know that California takes forever to count its votes. We know this. This is just a thing. In fact, a lot of places on the West Coast take a while to count their votes. And they're also three hours behind the rest of us. So... (laughs) You know, I think Nate Silver on his podcast had mentioned that um, if it just happened to be the case that we got the results for Indiana and Florida really quickly, and those were bad for Democrats, and that sort of shaped the whole narrative, and Georgia too, and that shaped the whole narrative, and then you go back and you look at it now, 
And the result of that election looks pretty different than it did at the start of election night. It's almost as if counting the votes might make a difference in how you perceive how people voted. Um, which, you know, now that you look back on it, people... I was thinking to myself that only the Democrats could get bogged down in a multi-week discussion about whether it counted as a wave, a term that has no defined meaning, while the Republicans were declaring victory over only losing one House of Congress. Yeah. And 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 they did this by having the most favorable Senate map possibly since the direct election of senators. Uh, Is that true? Where Where's your... So people, well, first, so the direct election of senators only goes back, you know, 105 years. Uh, But uh, I, and I said one of the most, I I don't know for sure how, I know that it was one of the most, I know that it was one of the most favorable. This is what everybody was saying. I haven't compared every single Senate map to see how. how Sure. I was just just curious where that um, particular frame came from, because I, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case just because of the, well, one part of it. Any idiot can look at which states were in play and know that it was, yeah. Well, not any idiot because Trump. Well, they um, can know and what they say is a different matter. Well, the thing was Trump said afterwards that if he had, if it hadn't been for him, they would have lost 10 seats in the Senate, right. which was right. kind of hilarious because the Republicans were only defending nine seats. <laughs> so, you know, not any idiot knows what's going on looking at the map. Um, but this was a really yeah. bad map for Democrats. Although people have already started looking ahead to 2020 and said, oh, it's really not that great in 2020 either. So you're sort of forced to think at that point, well, maybe the Democrats are just bad at the Senate, which is basically true, um, because it's it's you know, it's it's extremely non-proportional and it values yeah. how spread out you well, are more than how many people you are. Interesting. Well, I have to, I'd have to look at that because 2014 was when um, the majority turned over. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, in 20. 20- so I mean now like the Democrat the Republicans won like five or six seats then, if yes. I recall. Now correctly. people weren't saying that it's like as bad as this year. They were just saying it was also yeah. bad. Sure. Or at least it wasn't amazing. Yeah. Um, but again, it's hard to say with some of these things, and we don't know what the national environment is going to be like in two years. Um, right. to a certain extent, a lot of people refuse to uh, agree on what the national environment is like now. Um you Yeah. I th- you know, there's some things that as frustrating as it is to uh, not be able to ascribe novel causes to the effects that we see, I think often it's just, you know, why did Trump win in 2016? I think a huge answer, you know, a huge component of the answer to that question is most American presidents serve two terms and then turn it over to the next party. Um, you know, I think the, the willingness of many American voters to just say, yeah, well, you know, things aren't going that great. I will at least assent to the other party taking over. I think that must have been operative. Obviously, we have extremely polarized political times now. So the extent to which people uh, would be willing to say, oh, Let's just let the government change hands and see how the Republicans do. I mean, not you know, not many people who would have voted for Democrats would. It seems counterintuitive, perhaps, that that, that would be the case. But uh, but it, it, I mean, it seemed to happen. And that rule of, of American politics um, seems to be operative once again. And in twenty twenty, okay, let's see. You know, one of the rules is they serve two terms, and then it switch was over, but, um, you know, for that, for that reason, I would, or with that rule in mind, I've, I've long been, um, way, uh, wary of Democrats screwing up that race, but I don't know. I think I, I feel that the scale of this midterm result, I mean, the really unprecedented turnout for example, uh, suggests to me that um, what happened was in 2016 people went to sleep, and then in 20 and then throughout 2017 and 18 um, responded to that, having fallen asleep, to say no, things are now going to be different, and that the 
that resolve to change things is kind of a lagging uh, indicator, as it were. And I think that that'll still be bearing fruit in 2020, particularly if we go into a recession, which um, seems possible. I mean, I would have to say it's more than possible, but likely simply because we're in the middle of, you know, one of the longest recoveries ever. Um, yeah, well, uh, specifically, it seems possible that we would go into a recession, the effects of which would still be on people's minds around that election. Now, that was, I was saying in terms of the likeliness of it, less, yeah, I totally agree with you. Obviously, at this point, any any moment in which we go into the recession, you sort of have to say, like, oh, well, obviously, this is going to happen because of the length of the recovery. But um, if we go into a recession immediately, and it's, you know, that many just because people um, started to get leery about the length of the recovery and it only lasts for six months, then the political effects of 2016 might be um, irrelevant. Well, I'm not quite inclined to agree with that, um, in part because uh, when I think about will a recession occur that will affect the results, I, in my mind, I actually see the opposite issue where it would happen um would it happen so close to the election that the effects are not felt yet um i think i don't know again this is that's some prognostication i guess we can't really weigh in on too expertly um but uh i think trump after all the boasting he's done about how great the economy is if the economy softens even and that's really you look at his approval rating and there's a part of you that's like how is it that high how is it 42 percent on average for a guy who does all this crazy stuff but then you pause and you think well the economy is doing so well how is it that low and if i mean if the economy starts to drop out from under him what does he really have left and the answer is the emotional connection he has with a lot of people he gets angry by yelling out awful awful things um which is a real thing um it's it's difficult to um, talk too much about why people vote Trump when so many of the answers that the Trump voters give when they're talked to by media people are all so bad um, in the sense that they come off being really xenophobic and um, just kind of nasty and filled with hate, uh, which is not to say that everybody who voted for Trump is that way, but the ones who talk to the media sure seem that way. <laughs> um yeah, so yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I If any party could mess this up, it's the Democrats. Uh, but we're really just in uncharted territory in terms of a president who comes in with such low approval ratings, whose approval ratings have remained very low. People are like, oh, they're recovering. He's getting more popular again. He's all the way up to 46% uh, approval. And then it tends to dive down again when he says something else. And at this point, two years in, it, we haven't had much time to feel the effects of anything he's done. And as we've mentioned before, presidents can't really control the economy all that much. They get both more credit and more blame than they deserve. But one of the things they can do is screw up the economy by doing something awful like a trade war, which you know is already having its, its impact uh, on a lot of people. But not on his approval ratings. Um... Well, it's hard to tell what causes what impact on the approval ratings. Uh, I mean, that, as you said, like that midterm was not great for him. And we're at the point now where it's some of the, you know, the the manufacturers who are feeling the tariffs a bit. We just had this news about General Motors closing all of these plants. And then you can say, well, is that related to the tariffs? Were they going to do that anyway? Um, Are the, when will the consumers start to feel that? These are all things that, um, it reminds me, you know, the, the famous phrase is that the stock market predicted nine of the last five recessions. Right. And, you know, Trump was so happy when the stock market hit 25,000 for the first time. You'd think he'd be just as happy the 10th time it's hit that number as I believe it did this week. I don't know how many times, but it just keeps bouncing around 25,000. Um, right. I mean, you know, this is as we have we have been at pains throughout the course of this show to demonstrate the ways in which we think Donald Trump is exactly the sort of person who should not be given power. And um, I do have some confidence that those ways in which he's a terrible person who should not be given power will manifest themselves enough to prevent his reelection. Before the election, there were plenty of people who 
you really didn't seem to believe he was going to do a lot of the stuff he said. 2016 was a weird year in terms of, if you look at Brexit, for example, people voting for a thing and then later going, oh, it means this? It's it's not just the good, happy stuff? Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's... Well, but, you know, and this is another uh, way in which our long delay led to a certain degree of timeliness, but um, there were, again, speaking of, like, sleepwalking, not really understanding what the question was and casting a vote that had catastrophic consequences. You know, Brexit and Trump can be spoken of in the same breath. I, I agree with that. Um, but then in terms of waking up, uh, we had... Later that same year, Macron was elected in large part, it appears, because people in the center and the left said, okay, we may not really like this guy's fundamental center neoliberal, to use that unfortunate word, um, sort of ideological, ideological commitment, but the alternative is catastrophic, and so we have to band together to prevent the far right from taking over the office of the presidency. And they, they did that. And now um, we're seeing one of the major challenges uh, where that decision is sort of hitting, you know, the rubber hits the road, both in terms of Brexit, uh, where <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'll just, I'll just leave it right there because um, I'm not even going to begin to attempt to, reveal my ignorance of, of how that process is unfolding as uh, yeah, the British Parliament responds to the, the deal that may negotiate with the Europeans. Um, but then in France, you have this very interesting um, period of these crazy violent protests, uh, which some people are reacting to as the voice of the people. You know, true in true French uh, fashion, you know, the you know, uh, la nation was you know, taking to the barricades um, against this uh, this out of touch <clears throat> aristocratic ruler. But I don't know, you know how much you want to talk about that. But one of the things that I find compelling about those protests is the extent to which you know, the fundamental matter at hand is how does a society, uh, <laughs> a swear word came to mind that, uh, is perhaps really appropriate, but, um, I, it's, I don't want to, how does a society unfuck itself after decades of, uh, being put after decades of public policy, causing regular people to make decisions that were bad, that, that made sense relative to the public policy of, in this case, um, urban planning that led people to rely on diesel-fueled cars for transportation. And now, France, Macron himself, many people in France want to decarbonize their economy and what are the steps that they can take now to do that aggressively in a way that can be sustained, you know, democratically sustained on the one hand and economically sustained on the other. A tax on diesel, a relatively aggressive path, you know, towards higher and higher taxes on, you know, on on carbon-based fuels seems like it would be part of that solution. And if any state could be trusted to redistribute the revenue from that tax to prevent the effect from falling too heavily on uh, the most vulnerable members of the population, you'd kind of expect that France would be, would be that state. But uh, nevertheless, there are, there are problems. So that's interesting. It, we're, there are all these, all these examples of um, people waking up, you know, at long last. And whether that context is waking up after 2016 and going to polls in 2018 or, um, you know, waking up after 
you know, after the 50s, you know, waking up after, I mean, as, you know, as a society waking up after the long, um, sort of dreamy forgetfulness, uh, lack of attention to looming climate disaster that, that was collectively the, the second half of the 20th century. Mm, which, you know, brings up that the Trump administration also decided to release its climate report the day after Thanksgiving. Right, right. Speaking of sleepwalking through these disasters, and boy, um, that has made so little impact on anything in the discussion that, I don't know, I, one of the things that annoys me a great deal about um, uh, when, when it comes to climate change are Somehow you get all of these same – the conservatives that we laud at other points for being anti-Trump who will then turn around and say, yeah, but I'm only lukewarm on global warming. I don't think it's going to be that big a deal. And you yeah. just sort of wonder, like, where did you get – where did all of you people in, like, the not-quite-crazy right get the same memo that – where are you basing this idea on that all these climate scientists are telling you it will be a disaster and you believe them that it's happening but not that it will be a disaster? I don't. And it seems I like think, quite the thing. I think to... a lot of it is based on religion. I think a huge amount of it has got to be based on well, religion. No because... one told us uh, uh, after the rainbow, God said He would never uh, flood the earth again. Right. And um, you know, I, mean, I remember I remember reading the Book of Job as an as an adult and coming upon that section where Job is complaining to God and God says, you know, Job, God puts him back, puts him in his place and says, you know, how dare you speak to me in that way? How dare you question me? What do you know? Do you know where the lightning comes from? Do you know where I, where I stock up the snow, you know, in the, to send, do you know where I send the, uh, the rain from? You know, X, Y, Z, and he just he sort of lists all these natural phenomena that uh, that obviously were awesome and terrifying to um, you know to the to the Hebrews in the you know sixth and seventh century or millennia, and when these stories were were being put together, and um, you know, and Job sort of crestfallen, oh, you know, no, I don't. But we do. Yeah, right? we, we do. And that the fact that we do now, uh, I think, is still not fully integrated into the way that some, uh, basically, you know, very significant uh, demographics of the Republican Party uh, think about the world, that they still... Uh, they're finding that I think, I think that that's part of the reason that um, America is such an outlier in terms of countries that um, uh, that even profess because I mean, you can talk about other states like for example Brazil um, now we have uh, this new direction that that country is going in terms of its uh, commitment to adhering to um, uh you know, reduction of emissions. Um, you can talk about other countries that are cheating on their emissions, but the Republican Party is still, I believe, singular in the world as a party that has not admitted that this is even a threat. And and I think that that has got to do. It's got to have something to do with the uh, way that. The religious right um, constitutes such a significant aspect of their. I mean, significant religious right on one end, and the democrat, um, sort of the regional aspect of it, the um, uh, fossil fuel extraction economies are so significant to the regions where the Republican Party has power. I mean, it may be difficult to extract those two, as it were, um, factors from each other, but. That's what I would say hmm. about that. It's – I'm not sure that – I feel like there are enough other countries where they have religious focuses that have not led them astray on climate change 
Um, although I do agree that the groups in the U.S. that deny it had, tend to have that overlap. Right. Well, I, uh, obviously, we talk about incredibly complicated issues and whether a particular cause that we are you know, spitball you know, has a particular influence on one of these outcomes. It's, it's obvious. You know, there's, I can't imagine a conversation that we would have where one of these factors that we're discussing would be the factor that causes whatever issue we're, we're discussing. So I think that there's a role. I think that there's got, there's clearly a role that religion and a view of the world that is literally in scripture. Uh, as you, as you said, I mean, it's right there that you, that we no longer have to worry about the, uh, the sort of destruction of the earth by God through kind of environmental catastrophe. Um, and given that scriptural connection and the sort of incidentals of, you know, uh, the role of religion, religious uh, conservatism in the Republican Party, which is so adamantly opposed to even acknowledging this threat, and I think it's, it's, it's playing a part, uh, which is obviously not to say that religious people are by definition opposed to, um, you know, to doing something about this threat. Obviously, that's not the case, and I know it very well firsthand uh, from my boss, who was deeply conservative uh, politically and religiously, an incredibly devout uh, Christian for whom I have just, just endless wells of respect and whose faith is actually pushing him to uh, take more of an active role in um, preventing our wanton uh, consumption of fossil fuels from poisoning the earth for, you know, for, I mean, poisoning the earth to such an extent that uh, even we may not be able to live in sort of organized civil society. Um, and certainly our children will be dealing with that, uh, with that threat, depending on how radically and rapidly the, uh, these changes take hold. Right. And one would also point out, I mean, an interesting a side note that comes up whenever there's a discussion about religion in the United States and how it affects politics is that, you know, some 70 or 80 percent of America is Christian. So when we say, you know, that's why when you say the religious right, it's, you know, that's sort of like a singular term. It's not just, you know, all religious people who are conservative or just all Christians in America. It's, you know, you're talking about a specific grouping of people who tend to have outsized influence for various reasons. But, you know, when you hear, oh, there's a negative portrayal of Christians on TV, where are the positive portrayals of Christians? You're like, well, almost every television show does a Christmas episode every year. They're all Christian. They're almost all Christian characters on these television shows. It's you now it may be true that when a character um, makes religion the sole focus of why the character is there, it tends to be portrayed in a somewhat negative or fundamentalist light. Um, but, you know, as I said, some 70 to 80 percent of America is Christian. And plenty of them do not have uh, difficulty with a lot of these issues. Some of them do, though. Um, I mean, I, I will, in my, my mind personally, I think a lot of the anti-environmentalist stances of people on the right have a lot to do with how they just hate hippies so much. And they hate the 60s so much. And environmentalism was a cause in the 60s, and they hate the 60s, and they hate hippies, and they've sort of put them all together. And so when you talk about the environment, they're like, oh, you're some tree hugger that wants to do whatever. And it's very hard for people to get past that emotional reaction to it, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that that uh, cultural um, – I mean, you know, cultural culture is another very messy – term that uh, if you're trying to be rigorous, it's not clear what value using that term even has. But I think uh, colloquially, you know, there's a way in which um, creating a political culture in the way that you described of like toughness and pragmatism and um you know, willingness to kind of cut through gauzy 
silly approaches to life like what hippies do, uh, you know, creating that, that particular kind of political culture, um, <clears throat> took specific things to make it happen. You know, it took particular moments, particular decisions by political leaders, um, to, you know, to, to put that culture into effect. And it still has effects, you know, um, and when Trump, for example, at his rallies talks about beating people up, you know, that's both a cause and an effect of this kind of political culture, right? Where toughness and, um, antagonism and willingness to be seen as being tough and antagonistic, uh, has traction with people. And, you know, where did that start? Where did it come from? I think, I think part of where it came from, and, you know, to get back to the George H.W. Bush thing, uh, yeah, part of it was from his era as well. And, you know, I just wanted to, I don't know, I, you completely dropped the, uh, you know, the Bush funeral thing. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how he's been, uh, commemorated. Right. And so I happened to be, coming home past the Capitol at 10 p.m. the night that his body was lying in state. Um, and I wanted to go over and pay my respects. Um, however, at 10 p.m. at night, there was a three-hour line um, going, you know, far outside past the Capitol. Uh, it was 36 degrees. I took me long enough just to find the end of the line that I... And hearing it was three hours, I ended up not staying for it, um, which, you know, I, I really wanted to, but that was, I couldn't imagine a world in which that was a the correct decision for me to make, um, to, to stick through that. Because I was surprised that that many people were there at that hour, um, hmm. including a lot of young people. Now, to a certain extent, it's there's a sort of, a, well, how often do you get to see a president lie in state like that. Thankfully, not super often. <laughs> um, you know, had it been Obama, I would have waited three hours. But had it been Obama, it would not have been a three-hour wait. It would have been considerably longer than that. Um, but that's, yeah. and of course, that has something to do with the fact that the demographics of D.C. would result in a much longer line for a Democrat than um, even a, a popular Republican. Yeah, or, I mean, or they'd have to figure out some way of, you know, putting it in a space. I mean, they'd have to do it in red square or something. I mean, they'd have to do it in a way that, you know, tens of thousands of people could be processed as it were, uh, you know, participate in the moment and, and flow through yeah. to get more people so, to be involved. Anyway, that's, you know, uh, so I was thinking a lot about this, um, all the tributes to him, because I feel as though if he had passed three years ago, the reception would have been very different. Um, because almost all of the tributes to him were really about drawing a contrast with the current incumbent of the White House um, and all the ways in which George H.W. Bush is kind of the last of an era of people who um, were grown-ups in politics, basically, as president. Um, at least that's how some people viewed it. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of George H.W. Bush's legacy that was always going to get better over time. Um, his handling of the end of the Cold War was very good. Um, he was that kind of president who was exactly the right man for the moment when he became president, and then that moment passed and the voters removed him, which is, you know, not a huge insult considering that that is what happened to Winston Churchill. Um, but anyway, uh, so I do think people have gone a little overboard in... Um, the positive things they've said about him while forgetting that, um, you know, the, the Willie Horton ad, which until recently was pretty much the main thing his presidency was remembered for whenever it came up in conversation, um, that that alone has become this icon in our culture. Well, yeah, well, I think that's not an accident. I mean, we would have remembered other things if not for, I mean, you mentioned timing for this and if George H.W. Bush had died you know, right after Ferguson, right. all anyone would talk about would be 
or mad. Um, not a, you know, not anyone. Obviously, um, other people would have mentioned foreign policy and and prioritized that, but you know, clearly it has a different valence um, now. People are still obviously processing um, uh, you know those kinds of issues as well, but um, but it's not as raw as it would have been if, you know, if he died, um, a couple of years ago. Right. And one moment that, um, I, 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 that I had heard about once thought that can't be right. And like tried to find it in other places and confirmed it was that there was some exchange he had with an atheist during one of the campaigns. They said, what are you going to do to, to woo the atheist vote? And his response was basically, oh, I don't think atheists are citizens or something. It was, it was like really <laughs> a really bizarre remark that you would have trouble even imagining Donald Trump saying. Um, yeah. Because, you know, the late 80s, it's always interesting to remember that um, despite people who are outlier setbacks like Donald Trump, um, culture does shift. And on a lot of issues, it shifted very quickly in just the last few decades. Um yeah, it's, I don't well, know. So anyway, I think, um, to me, there are two really vile things that, um, you know, have to be mentioned and have to be taken seriously uh, when discussing his legacy that I knew about. And, um, you know, one was Willie Horton. Uh and then the other was Bush's continuation of Reagan's kind of, I mean, it, similar to the way you were describing, you know, how he kind of thought of or didn't think of atheists, um, his kind of pretending that the AIDS crisis wasn't happening and that it wasn't a big deal and it didn't matter. Um, you know, that's a big deal. And it's it, it goes along with, again, what you were saying about um, how quickly cultural shifts have occurred that now, um, you know, the idea that government would be so callous as, um, you know, as people were sick and dying, you know, as American citizens were being, uh, afflicted by this terrible sort of un little understood, um, disease, you know, I don't have the quotes to hand, but, um, you know, he, he said very similar things about this, about that, about the AIDS crisis that like, you know, who cares really? I mean, you know, what, what does it matter? Um, very, you know, I'm not saying he's very, very dismissive of that, which is a huge problem. And, uh, and again, I think deserves the word vile. And then another one, which I was not as aware of, um, but the, as I read through, basically, you know, I'd read these, uh, he was the man of the hour, as you said, you know, he's a great president and he'll be better uh, appreciated as time goes on. I'm like, yeah, it seems a little, it seems a little much. And then I'd read these, like, he was a war criminal. He lied to get us into Iraq. And that was the basis of his son's catastrophic war there. It's like, that's all, that's overdone. That's overdone. I guess, you know, I guess it'll be like a mild positive on Bush. I'll let I'll just let people go and appreciate his legacy. But then I'd read another hagiography, and then you know just feel so lied to and patronized and insulted, you know, condescended to as a reader. So then I'd seek out more negative things about him, and in doing that, uh, came upon some very interesting points that were made about the. Uh, the fact that George H.W. Bush pardoned people who otherwise would have been investigated for Iran-Contra hmm. and in so doing protected himself uh, from investigation as someone who would have been in the room with a lot of those, when a lot of those discussions were under, were being under, you know, undergone and or undertaken. And um, that to me goes right to the heart of the crisis of American constitutionalism and democracy that no surprise his party has inflicted on this country. Um, and to me, that is another one of the signs that 
that you know easy, just lazy journalistic shorthand of, oh, Bush is dead. Let's compare that to Trump. Bush was a hero. Yeah, Bush was gracious. Bush had manners. Trump is terrible. Trump is selfish. Trump doesn't understand the concept of service. Let's compare these two men. Yeah, sure. Okay, fine. Let's do that. And let's also be serious about how we got from, you know, 1998 to 1992 to 28 uh, to 2016. And, you know, to me, that was, that was the most, um, frustrating thing to me was to see so little serious discussion of, um, let's, let's think for a minute how our read of, you know, George H.W. Bush, um, You know, like, can we go back and see the ways in which his party brought us to the present moment and not engage in this sort of shallow, like, oh, if only we could go back to those good old days where decent men, uh, you know, wielded power with a sense of duty, right? Like, was it, was it duty that led him to cover his own ass so that his involvement with a shocking crime. I mean, really, if you think, I mean, what, like Iran Contra is a, it's very complicated. I don't, yeah, I need to read more about it, but, um, you know, the executive going behind the back of Congress, breaking the law to raise money which was sent to support death squads in South America and you know, raise money by selling arms to the Iranians, you know, to support death squads in, in Latin America. I mean, this is, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's really unbelievable. Uh, but nevertheless, something that happened. And I think part of the reason it's unbelievable is that it was so effectively swept under the rug. Um, and I think, in the same way that America is giving itself a long, hard look in the mirror on the subject of race, um, I think that has yet to occur in the way that it really needs to on the subject of um, just criminality. I, Which, I, yeah, anyway. Yeah, that's, and as people, you know, neither of us were cognizant while that was occurring, so we right. can't really, you know, speak to what the coverage at the time was like. Um, it brings to mind when you know Ford comes into office and pardons Nixon, and you know he took a lot of heat for that, pretty much justly so. But at the same time, if you pause and think, what happens if you don't pardon Nixon and the country goes through two more years of just dealing with Watergate and dealing with Nixon, and um, it's worth it for the country to move on. Um, yeah. But. What you're saying here, Iran-Contra is not the same as Watergate and Nixon, and letting it go on without pardoning people would not have had that kind of catastrophic, you know, impact on the country. Um, I think you're right, uh, but it it brings us to another question, which is, um, when we're talking about the legacies of people who have passed on, like George H. W. Bush, um, is there utility culturally to skipping over some of the bad things like that because um we talked in our you know our heroes and symbols podcast about john mm -hmm. mccain and um if we never acknowledge the bad if we sweep under the rug the bad things that george hw bush said you know most people are not aware at all of how he treated the aids crisis or weird things he said about atheists or any any bad thing he did other than the willie horton ad really Right. If we pretend he didn't do those things at all, is that better for making him a sort of cultural lesson? Because um, all your heroes are going to be imperfect. And um, does it matter that he made mistakes like that? Or perhaps he would not even, some would not even consider them mistakes. 
if those things essentially get forgotten and we want to hold him up as an example for people, is that, is it just better to have an example? Do we hinder ourselves from knowing how to act by getting bogged down in the mistakes people made? Well, you know, I think um, when we were talking about McCain, you know, part of the thing we said, or part of the things we talked about, part of the things I said at least, uh, was that there was this way that McCain kept saying, um, you know, I just did what anyone would do. I did what was expected of me. And that he played that role uh, that needed you know, he played the role of the object of emulation very well because he um, exhibited that respect for the higher principle. The you know, it's really it's not about me; it's about this thing that you're saying I did, and I'm going to reduce myself in order to further highlight how important the principle is. In his case, you know sacrifice and, and service and duty and putting the other members of, um, you know, the, uh, putting the other POWs ahead of himself. And with Bush, you know, I mean, I, I do not in any way mean to, um, denigrate his wartime service because you know, I was reading about what happened when he was shot down and, you know, he, st he stayed in the plane filling up with smoke. And it was just an accident that the two guys who bailed out uh, were both somehow killed. Um, but, you know, he had the, he took the controls, or he stayed at the controls, basically in order to save these other two guys or give them a better chance to live and sacrifice himself. I mean, if you're going to be in the plane, you'd think, the first people to get out have the better shot, at least, right? Like, I mean, presumably that was his logic. And that's a incredibly noble thing that nothing else that he did in life can take away. Um, and I'm not trying to take that away. <clears throat> and that is something to emulate, that kind of uh, extreme sacrifice that, you know, that happens in war. But at the same time, okay, Mention that. Mention that as the kind of bravery and courage that we hope that all people are willing to uh, exhibit at some point in their lives if the situation calls for it. But then move on to the fact, and I think uh, comparing Bush with McCain, I think is um, <clears throat> is uh, in fact extremely. Uh, illustrative of something because I get the sense that McCain, he, he, he did some unpleasant stuff in order to get reelected, but time and time again, he kind of sabotaged himself by very obviously refusing to stoop to a certain level in order to exercise power and in order to seize, you know, power that he would then later exercise. And I don't know if Bush ever did that. I mean, what, what were the examples? Like, okay, the tax thing, sure, but that was a different. <clears throat> I mean, you can, you can you can also praise him for being willing to work with Democrats and not simply shut down the government or, um, you know, completely uh, sabotage the budget. But I don't think he gets. I don't think you can really give him that much credit for that, uh, particularly at the time, and. Um, and particularly given the alternative. And so what other examples are there of him being faced with a, a real gut check of, I can ostentatiously refuse to sell out politically, bureaucratically, legalistically, you know, in these very complicated ways. Um, knowing the effect that it will have on my future. But I, I simply cannot not, you know, I cannot do the, the wrong thing here. You know, when he was a congressman, he talked about, uh, you know, he voted against civil rights. I mean, he later, he later, my understanding is, had a change of 
sort of maybe a feeling of guilt for having done this, but, you know, he actually said, I'm going to vote against the Civil Rights Act because I'm concerned with, you know, the 80%, not the 14%. You know, the, I'm, I'm concerned with the uh, the 86% of white Americans, not the 14% of minorities that this bill is for. It's like, how dare you? You know? Okay, he felt bad about it. That's good, I guess. But in the actual moment, what did he say? You know? And I think, and maybe that's the reason that he became president and McCain never did. But, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a part of his legacy. I mean, that's, a, that's an essential part of his legacy. And yeah, America admires winners. And you have to be the winner to write the history to some extent, but, um, <clears throat> What's the what's the point of being alive? You know, when the winner dies, if you don't get to say, "Hey, I remember all that nasty, disgusting stuff that you did," right? And that it gets to another issue. And I've been on a rant, so um, I don't want to keep going yeah, too long. I will throw in that I'm not having you speak at my funeral. <laughs> That's a that was a good one. Um, no, yeah, that was that was a good one. But anyway, <laughs> uh, you know the the sort of segue from that. One of the things that I've been thinking about um, is dilemma that our that our generation faces is that um, we as young people have to choose. You know, young relatively, still relatively young compared to everyone else in America. Um, we have to choose what we actually think and talk about. And that choice presents us with a great opportunity because there are a lot of stupid, pointless things that we could continue to talk about in just an endless, fruitless loop. Um, I don't know if you saw my very clever reference there to our generation and Fruit Loops, but that was, I guess that went over your head. I, but anyway. I'm not sure where that went, but it, <laughs> it, it was. Sorry. No, I'm, I'm, yeah. It's, I'm now I'm hungry. Anyway, but, you know. No, just speaking of, you know, two people born in the 80s. But anyway, the, um, but the, but the thing is that we have this opportunity, we have this choice, um, that gives us a great deal of flexibility and, and power to set a new agenda. Just say, you know what? We refuse to, to fight the same fights. We refuse to argue the same arguments. We're going to focus on new things that actually matter to us, right? That's our prerogative as a generation. But at the same time, um, if you forget history, if you ignore history, if you don't spend the time to focus on things like Willie Orton and the history of race in America and um, these sort of esoteric, you know, potentially esoteric, depending on your position, you know, where you stand in society, issues like um, U.S. government policy towards the AIDS epidemic under the Reagan and Bush administrations or, um, you know, the end stage of the Iran-Contra investigations and these pardons, you know, if you don't investigate those, then you're kind of adrift. Um, right. You know, if you don't know your history, there's, there's potentially a lot that you're missing out on. So I, I, I see that as a, as a major dilemma. Right. Um, well, I mean, what you're getting at here, which I mean, is obviously something everybody's just taken to understand, but for those in the audience who need this spelled out, he's saying that um, right now we should be calling our incoming Democratic congressman and making sure they reopen the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. Right, exactly. Exactly. Um, that, is, that is exactly right. I expect uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez to chair the select committee on Benghazi, too. Yes. Well, they had better. I mean, you you know, we, we, we you just said we can't just let these things go uninvestigated. Right. Well, exactly. No, it, it, this is this is why it is a dilemma because um, it 
was, there's a great power in that choice to simply say, this doesn't matter anymore. We don't care. We're moving on to other things that matter to us. Um, but sometimes those things really do matter. Yeah. Some, you know, those issues and the, and the precise details that you can get from, uh, from real focused, committed investigation. Uh, you know, these things can matter. Right. But, yeah, because I think, yeah, sorry, go ahead. In your, in your, when you're talking about people who've passed and you're bringing up, um, you know, the, the stories, oh, he said he did this or that about the AIDS crisis. People had different views of gay people back then. They thought it was just afflicting gay people. They didn't see straight people very much. Um, right, because that matters. The useful thing to that think matters, right? Does. And so what I'm saying is the useful thing to look at, um, I think, if as an intellectual exercise, um, you know, on one hand, it's easy to say, well, attitudes towards gay people have moved on. That's not a mistake we're going to repeat. But you have to look and say, well, what caused him to make that mistake and what factors are still around that could cause us today to make a mistake that is like that? Because we're not going to make exactly that mistake again. But we could make some other mistake that is similar based on similar problems, which, I mean, if you want to look at mistakes the Republicans are making today that are in some sense similar, um, the attitude they have towards illegal immigrants is very much uh, on that note because um, it's this sense of a lack of empathy for the people who are suffering. In, in certain situations to say, look, we're going to separate these families and we're just going to let them suffer as a deterrent. And there's a callousness towards that human suffering that is part of the same basic mistake. This attitude yeah. that, yeah, but it's those people who are suffering. We don't really care because, you know, for gay people, they said, well, they're gay. That's wrong. So it's OK that they're suffering for illegal immigrants. It's they came in illegally, so they should be suffering because that was wrong. Right. Well, and uh, I think it's also worth noting that yeah, part of the uh, solution to the dilemma I sketched out about when to let history lie, you know, when to let these issues fade away, is the fact that some of this history isn't history. You know, some of this history is still with us now. And uh, specifically on the going back to the Iran Contra thing, did the destabilization? I mean, the destabilization of well, we've talked about this before. Like most people would be pretty happy to just live where they are, right? I mean, you know, some people have kind of a wanderlust and they want to travel or they want to get out of where they grew up. Um, but if there were economic opportunity and if there were stability. And if people had a sense that they could live decent, dignified lives uh, in their, you know, the communities where they're born, most people would just stay there. And the fact that Central you know, America is in such turmoil that people are fleeing. You know, they're not just coming because they want to work uh in American service jobs and, you know, pick strawberries and the burgers or clean toilets, you know, they're, they're, they're coming both for economic opportunity in filling those, um, those jobs. And, <clears throat> but also crucially because, you know, even if they, uh, did those types of service jobs or you know, lower wage jobs, um, at home, even if they could feed themselves and their families, they're get, you know, they're under threat of uh, of murder or kidnapping or you know violent robbery or whatever else. And why is that the case? Well, partly part of the reason is American policy towards those countries. And we and we've talked about this before, so I don't want to completely belabor the point. But my understanding is that you know there are people who can very articulately talk about those American policies reaching right back to uh, Reagan and and Bush and 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 much earlier even than than that and so um, you know it really is it really is tough to know when to or where to draw the line um, on some of these issues and how much blame to give uh, you know give people who, led 
massively powerful organizations that destroyed lots of people's lives. And that's, I mean, that's how you would characterize any president, any American president, simply because of the, the scale of power that you're talking about when you're talking about the American government. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a genuine dilemma, but it's one that, um, it's just very frustrating reading about Bush because there were so few articles that I read that, that struck a good balance. You know, it seemed like there were ones that were talking about how he's just this angel that we should all, uh, you know, weep for because there will never be another one like him. And then others who, I mean, this, you know, I read Mehdi Hassan, uh, in The Intercept, you know, talking about how he's a, he was a war criminal because of his, uh, you know, lying to get us into the war, into the first Gulf War, right? Um, you know, so on the one side, just absurdly or hagiographic uh, writing, and on the other, just I mean, equally absurd kind of argument in search of evidence, uh, trying to to cast, you know, to, to sort of smear dirt, but but just very few realistic you know, even-handed uh, portrayals, which I think this is the thing partly is that the realistic even-handed portrayal of someone like McCain to me makes you respect McCain even more because you see the struggle that he went through as a person of integrity who had to nevertheless wade into the arena and consider the necessity of doing bad things in order to gain power to do good things later. But with Bush, I haven't, I haven't gotten that sense. I hadn't gotten that sense from him at all. That could be, I have, I have to confess, I have not read that many. Um, I mean, I've only read like six, but oh, you know, you made it sound like a lot. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, uh, I read a lot of headlines. And, oh, okay. Yeah, sort of. Uh, yeah. That's. I don't read the. Headlines. Who has time to read anything these days? Yeah, exactly. Just the people who listen to an hour-long podcast of um, us saying words. Well, hopefully they're doing this while they're you know folding laundry or. Right. I mean, yeah, that's. I um. I have my, my, my own podcast listen to have stocked up so much simply because um, most of the times when, you know, I'm traveling on the metro or something, it's just too loud to hear a podcast. Hmm. Um, especially, I don't know, a lot of the ones where people have nice, soothing, quiet voices like ours, um, just helping lull need, everybody to sleep. Need better headphones. But I do need better headphones, but I get new headphones and those headphones are better and then they get quiet very quickly. All of my headphones get very quiet. Interesting. And when my legacy is written, that is going to be in all of the views. One must always remember that his headphones were too quiet, which was part of his constant struggle. So, all Sounds right. Good. Well, it's good that. to be doing a podcast again. Um, we obviously couldn't catch up on everything that happened while we were um, away. Um, but you know, to some extent that's okay because it meant you missed a lot of really bad takes about the election right afterwards. Um, we would have said, Oh, this was nothing like a wave. It was more like a trickle. And then the Democrats win another 10 seats when I keep counting. No, I, I, I have total faith in, uh, in Nate Silver. So I knew it was going to be, dude, he was, was spot on this year. He had oh, yeah. seats well, and he, the popular vote margin for the house. Correct. He basically always is though. That's the thing is people just like figure out ways to misinterpret what he's saying. Right. Or they, in the case of 2016, they, 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 you know, what polls are doing is to give you a snapshot of the numbers, not to tell you who wins. The numbers right. will be off by a couple of points in either direction, but you'll be in that area. In 2016, they're like, well, the numbers show Hillary Clinton winning. So if Hillary Clinton doesn't win, then this is a huge change. I have had so many conversations where I felt like I was just banging my head against the wall trying to explain to people um, that the numbers being off by one or two points is not the same as the polls being completely wrong. Right. And that the polls have frequently been wrong, been more wrong in races people consider the polls to have been correct on, like Macron, simply because they're like, oh, the far-right populist will somehow win even though she's 30 points behind. 
And, you know, Macron wins, but he wins by even more than the polls said he was going to win by. And suddenly the polls are right. That's not anyway. All right. Well, that is one more rant. I, you know, that is a rant. I will. Anybody can email us at fear, honor and interest podcast at gmail.com and give me your phone number and I will leave you a voicemail upon request explaining my issues with how people interpret polling because I could go on and on so many times I could personalize it for you and I would be happy to do so until next week have a nice week we'll hopefully see you then bye